to be honest with you, when I was interviewing and when I started, I had pretty no idea what VCs do. The hardest thing is to be a successful VC. So you need to mentally prepare for all of the things that you'll have to sacrifice and you're not comfortable dedicating yourself fully to the industry. I think you'll be very disappointed. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. In our first installment of our new VC feature series, we're joined by Sasha Vidaborski, a quantum physicist turned VC partner at Atomico. Atomico is a $5 billion AUM VC fund investing in ambitious tech founders at Series A and beyond, with a particular focus on Europe. Founded in 2006 by Nicholas Zenstrom, former CEO and co-founder of Skype, Atomico has invested in and partnered with over 100 startups, including those at Klarna, Messagebird, Pipedrive, Hinge Health, and popular benefits platform Ben, to name but a few. I've had the real pleasure of partnering with Atomico in recent times and love the work they do. So I am thrilled to kick off this series by diving into Sasha's career and the investments he's made. I also would love to hear his advice to founders and gets the mentorship for other and aspiring VCs. So Sasha, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for being with us. How are things? Thank you so much, James. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, everything is great. It's finally sunny here in London, so enjoying a bit of sun. Hopefully it will continue. You know, the summer is around the corner. Oh, I know. London is a happy place when the sun's out, isn't it? I'm really thrilled that you're kicking off this series because it's Last year, it was the most popular series, 40 Minute Mentor. A lot of our network want to hear from top investors, either because they're pitching to them or because they want to be one. So we're going to get you warmed up with some quick fire questions. So please finish these sentences after me. Number one, my first ever investment was... So the first deal that I worked on was in, um, I think, 2015. It was a full-on investment in a company called Anginex that is developing an open source and quite popular web server uh, now used by roughly, you know, one third of the entire internet. And, you know, if you just count the top 10,000 websites, it's used by more than 60% of those. And I think for me personally, it was a brilliant example of the power and challenges that open source brings as a distribution model where, you know, you can have as much as, you know, tens of millions of websites using your technology, but it's still quite a challenge to commercialize it. And therefore, you know, there are pros and cons and throughout my career, I've been quite focused on open source and that has been a good, you know, company to get, uh, to get started with and therefore learn from the opportunities, but also the challenges in the industry. Oh, that's a great answer. And having worked recently on a chief revenue officer search for a open source scale up, I know what a challenge it is to commercialize, but an amazing opportunity. And second question, the deal I am most proud of is? As you might imagine, it's almost impossible to choose. You know, there are, every deal is, is a favorite one and the one that you would be most proud of. Maybe not to offend anyone and pick the, the deal that I've not done myself initially, but this is the company that I work closely with since quite a while. It's a company called Cloud and C that developed a hardcore AI engine that enables autonomous factories. And the simplest way to describe what they do is imagine an Amazon-like experience, but for metal parts manufacturing, where you just go to a platform, you upload your design, you click a button, a couple of days, you get that part delivered to your doorstep. 
it's a fascinating company that builds in a very labor-intensive market that is worth $100 billion and that touches everyone's lives. You know, more than 50% of things that you see around yourself were manufactured one way or another through precision metal machining. And therefore, you know, there is a quite a lot of opportunity to make things much better for, for the society. Awesome. I'm sure lots of people will be going to Google or Cloud Entity straight after this. So thanks for that. That's really interesting. I wish I'd have invested in. I was thinking about this question and, you know, obviously there are companies that I could have invested in and there are companies that just by virtue of me not being there at the time, there was no opportunity for me to invest. I think the more I reflected on my experience, the more I realized that there is one company that I'm particularly bitter about and it's a company called GitLab. Many people might know. And for me, it was a case in 2015, I just started in venture. And for me, it was a great example of me not pursuing the opportunity with more passion and let it slide to, you know, what many VCs experience, you know, we'll let you know when we are raising next and you just let it go. Sadly for me, that follow-up never happened and I never pursued it harder. And, you know, I can sit here and think like what could have and should have happened. But I think that was definitely an opportunity that I could have connected and I could have built a relationship with the founders, but I never did. And I think that is definitely something that stuck to, you know, in my mind and something that I truly believe could have been a good learning experience if I had done something else. Over the course of this series, we're going to have quite a few of those sliding doors moments, but I guess that's just part and parcel of being a, a VC investor. The hardest part of being a VC is? I think there are a bunch of things that are hard, and then there are a bunch of things that are challenging, depending on your personality. Among many things that are challenging, two probably are on the top of that list. So one is passing on companies, the opportunities to partner up with founders, especially the ones that you were close to saying yes, but you said no because of whatever reason. And I think one thing that VCs teaches you is that you can't be certain pretty much about anything because successful entrepreneurs are the ones that break the standards. And you, as a VC, you learn how to match patterns, but the most successful companies and the most successful and life-changing tech uh, opportunities were the ones that went against what is considered status quo. And therefore, you know, every time I pass an opportunity to partner with people, that moment when you click send, I think it's very hard mentally because you're kind of foregoing an opportunity to be a part of that story. And at a certain point, you kind of need to learn from your decisions. And if your decision wasn't right, sometimes you can make it right by investing at a later stage. But in most of the cases, that initial moment where you didn't build conviction in the partnership, that's pretty mentally hard. The second thing is seeing companies go out of business or die. And even though it's the nature part of the business, it's always heartbreaking to see how many months and years and sometimes decades of work that many people invested land nowhere. And in, it's very rare that it lands truly nowhere and it has not made a real impact on the world. But in many cases, you know, you just need to wind it down. And therefore, that's the moment where a lot of emotions, a lot of commitment is involved. And that's always hard to observe and be a part of. Definitely, sadly, uh, something that we're seeing, you know, at the moment. And I guess we'll always continue to see companies do go out of business, but it's never easy, is it? And I think that's where empathy and being human in, in that situation is where probably see difference in some investors that are maybe a bit more ruthless but certainly everything i've heard about Tomco is that you deal with those sort of situations in a very caring understanding way final quick question the one thing i'd like to change about vc is i would love to see more pension funds allocated to vcs i think um, you know every person should somehow contribute and therefore benefit 
from the future of technology that is going to be created. And the way the model works is that VCs are allocating someone else's money. In, in many instances, those other people or entities are the ultimate beneficiaries of the value that is being created through your investments and the partnerships that are being formed. And therefore, for me, it's pretty straightforward that you know if you contribute to a pension fund, that pension fund should also contribute somewhere that benefits the entire society. In Europe specifically versus US, but in general, you know, globally, I think there is not enough attention being spent by pension funds on VCs, not only as asset managers, but also as the entities and people and groups of people that hopefully make the world a better place. That's such an interesting point. Not one I've thought about much before, but it makes a lot of sense. So uh, thank you for sharing. Great to already get a snippet into some of the things that you're passionate about and some of your early learnings, but we're going to dive really deep now and start at the very beginning. Because I know that you were born in Moldova and studied quantum physics. Guess what? I don't know if it's a first, but it's definitely there aren't many quantum physicists that have been on the podcast before ultimately landing in your long-term career as being a VC. Do you mind giving our audience a little snapshot into your early life and just that early part of your career? As you mentioned, I grew up in Moldova, which, uh, you know, for people that don't know that country, it's a pretty small country, two and a half, three million people squeezed in between Romania and Ukraine. If you grow up there, the options, uh, you know, what you do in your later life are pretty well known. They're also quite limited. And for me personally, they weren't appealing. And therefore, pretty early in my you know, high school, I realized that I want to do something that you know, could open up more opportunities for me. Eventually, I decided to do something more technical. I always had more technical mindset and I always had been fascinated about, you know, the progress that tech can bring to the world. So, you know, for one combination of serendipity and luck and events, did uh, electrical engineering as my first degree and then did quantum physics, landed in a lab that was led probably by top five scientists in the field. Loved it, had successes here and there, but I think ultimately felt that my growth in that specific area would be quite sealed because for me personally, I had some capabilities, but I definitely didn't have capabilities to become the best in the field, but also I didn't enjoy it that much. I kind of need to enjoy what you do day to day. And from that perspective, after spending seven years getting my degrees and working in the lab, I thought, well, I've spent so much time doing very technical stuff. It will be a shame for me to go and do finance or do investment banking or some other type of job that is great and might be rewarding, but that doesn't require you spending you know, seven years grinding the ground, so to say. It slightly shifted gears and decided to do another master's degree in more kind of innovation studies where I spent, you know, considerable amount of time at MIT and MIT is all about entrepreneurship. It's all about, you know, the positive impact you can make on the world and how can you use technology to do that. And eventually, I think pretty serendipitously, I landed at my first VC job. That was a fund called Runa Capital. And to be honest with you, when I was interviewing and when I started, I had pretty no idea what VCs do. So I think it was incredible luck that, you know, they chose me for one reason or another. Two months into it, I felt, oh, wow, that's exactly what I want to do for the next like 30 years. Always be in touch with the technology, speak with people, something that I enjoyed so much that I felt it's a good fit for me. And only later on, I realized how privileged and lucky I was because it's actually an industry that is quite hard to break into. And I think being ignorant about the fact that it's quite hard to break into helped me a lot because I was like, ah, I mean, another interview, another thing, what is that? It was a lot of fun. So I didn't feel anxiety 
oh, I'm interviewing with this fund or I'm, I'm like, I'm on the verge of getting the offer and so on, which I think is the attitude that you kind of need to have not only to get into the job, but also to continue doing what you're doing. I'd love to just dig a bit more into that. You gave a snippet of some of the reasons that you were attracted to VC, but tell us a bit more. And how did you actually end up getting into the industry that first time around? What steps did you take? One thing that helped me a lot was the fact that I was trained technically. Didn't mean that I understand tech better than anyone else, but I definitely had tolerance for dealing with complex products and complex problems because that's what you do when you're you know trying to do something for instance in physics the fundamental physics and so on but at the same time you kind of need to be very interested in taking what is otherwise very dry piece of tech and convert that into value both value creation and value capture and i think that is something that you inherently need to have early on in your career to start doing things that will be useful for your later VC career. So for me personally, it was, you know, I got into startups pretty early. After my experience at MIT, me and my friends decided to start a company. And, you know, that uh, bug of, oh, we want to, you know, create a company, we want to raise money, we want to change people's lives, and we want to build relationships and so on, that definitely helped me to, to shape my profile on one hand, but also to shape my skills, on the other hand, that were attractive for, you know, working in VC. And eventually, once again, it was a combination of luck and me being at the right time at the right place. I you know, randomly got connected to this recruiter that was looking for a person to join as an associate of the team. And eventually, you know, after like 15 conversations I've had with like everyone, literally everyone in the firm, they probably built enough conviction to give me an offer. But that combination of interest in tech, curiosity, ability to step back from the nitty gritty details of what is being discussed and kind of conceptualize everything. And at the same time, having very strong passion for tech. And when I say passion, it's not only, oh, I love you know using that app or I love reading about that stuff. It's like, really, you need to live and breathe with tech and many things that otherwise you would not just do. In my spare time, I might read TechCrunch because you know I just enjoy understanding how the world is changing. I enjoy thinking about you know the future of specific area yeah amazing uh, and lots of fantastic tips there for anyone that's eager to start a career in vc and um, you alluded to the startup that you co-founded and i know that ultimately that failed which is always hard but can you tell us a bit about that business and particularly why it didn't work and if you were to start it all over again what would you do differently I would not start it in the first instance if I had an opportunity not to do it. I'm obviously joking, but I think, uh, you know, that has been tremendous experience. And to these days, I think that was one of the most useful experiences. And I'll expand on that in a second. What we were doing, we were building an app that was connecting groups of people that wanted to solve a simple problem, which is how to plan a get-together. For instance, organizing a get-together for a group of five people that want to go somewhere there are actually quite a lot of hassle involved. You know, how do you decide where to go? Who organizes that? Who, you know, not just people. How do you pay? How do you commute there? And a bunch of other organizational things we thought should be solved with technology. Conceptually made sense 10 years ago. I think terrible business, like really very bad business because of the simple reason. It's very well understood how to solve the problem but it's very hard to make money by solving that problem. So the model that we landed on eventually 
was that the app was free to use, but then we would need to go and partner up with specific venues that would pay us for specific promotions or like ads. And that made sense for them, but it didn't make sense for us as a business because that meant that we needed to have direct sales force and go literally like venue after venue and convince them to pay to this you know, unknown platform that might or might not bring you new people, right? And therefore, I think the business was very hard to pull off. But I think the second realization, which should be the first, is I started building that business with my friends. And I think we enjoyed hanging out together, but we were a terrible mix of talents to you know throw into one team. I think we had a lot of overlaps and we enjoyed the same things. And therefore, we couldn't even figure out, you know, what the right split of responsibilities. And, you know, after working on that problem for a year, start realizing that you need to have different directions that every person should be responsible for. And I think in our case, we just decided that it's better for us to remain friends and not to, you know, break the relationships. But as a team, we probably are not the match made in heaven. And therefore, my biggest realization of things that I think that I took away from that is understanding how the team gels together and understanding why this is the team to solve that specific problem is pretty critical. But I think the experience itself brought me so much empathy, how hard it is to build a company. And I kid you not, to this day, probably the most vivid memory that I had about that experience was us sitting in a room and getting the first ding money hit in our bank account from someone who paid for our service. And the first reaction we had was like, oh, wow, someone actually wants to pay for this. And I think, you know, that realization that getting the first client, even the entity set legally set, it's incredibly hard. And we as VCs, we sometimes forget how hard it is to make every step on the journey. Oh, you grew from 1 million ARR to 2 million ARR. Why not to 5 million ARR? But even growing from 1 million ARR to 1.1 million ARR, it's huge. Obviously, you need to apply a different lens on top of that and so on. But that empathy, how incredibly hard it is to build a business, I think is something that I keep reminding about, you know, to myself every every day. That ultimately makes you a much better investor because you've been a founder and you have empathy for founders and know how hard it is to scale a business. And ultimately, I guess when you do spot the hidden gems, the one with the great product market fit and the incredible teams, you know, the right blend of teams, probably greater clarity than perhaps others that haven't been sat in that seat. I think that's really, really important. And I can see why founders would be reassured having someone like you on the other side of the table. Obviously the VC industry has expanded loads over the last few years. It's kind of a super exciting place to be. And there are so many funds, small funds, accelerators, angel syndicates now, and obviously top tier funds of which Atomico is very much in that category. How did you end up there? Tell us a bit about that story. So before my MBA, I had been investing both in Europe and the US. And when I started my MBA, I had the idea that I'll probably stay in the US because that's where you know I did my MBA. By that time, I had already lived there for a few years. Many people think, and I strongly disagree, the main opportunity being in VC is in the US, primarily in, in Silicon Valley. So when I was recruiting for my internship in between first and second year, which in many cases is an opportunity also to find a full-time job for after graduation. Atomica was the only fund in Europe that I've spoke with. Most of the other processes and the offers I had 
were with the funds in the US. And the biggest difference between Atomica and everyone else was the experience I've had when I was recruiting with them versus any other process. I think for me personally, recruiting as it is investing is a dual process, right? Within that process, you sell yourself as a candidate, but you also buy the opportunity to be a part of that story. The same is true for the other side of the table, right? They buy an opportunity to bring you on board and they sell you the opportunity to be a part of that story. You kind of pick them, they pick you, and it's a dual carriage, right? Where it has to be a process that both parties enjoy. And I think it's very critical for both parties to lead with conviction. I think the biggest mistakes that I've done in my career, both in terms of you know, be that recruiting, but also investing, is when you don't show conviction early on and first need to build your own conviction. And then only after that, you start showing that, oh, actually, I'm convinced in you and the opportunity itself. So I think when I was speaking with Atomico, people were amazing. Like, you know, throughout the process, I felt very much valued. I felt that they're bought into the story. I felt that I fit very well into, you know, what's future for Atomica holds. But in particular, there was one partner that was also an alum of my school. And after I got the offer and I've been considering different offers, he called me and he basically said, you should join Atomica. You'll not regret, I promise you. And that's a pretty bold and, you know, very convincing statement for someone like him. And after that, I got a call from Nicholas, who is the, the CEO of Atomica. And he pretty much echoed that. And I felt, well, I mean, the two, you know, big names in VC say that. So I should definitely take that opportunity. And uh, here we are, you know, five years later, haven't regretted for a second. I love that. And I'm sure most of our listeners will have come across Atomico. For those that maybe don't know the business as well, what particularly sets Atomico apart from other VCs? And is there particular things in terms of how you interact with founders or anything else about the culture that is really unique? The culture and the way we are set up and the philosophy behind Atomico stems from the experience that Nicholas himself had when he was raising for Skype. You know, it was mid-2000s, there was not that much when it comes to entrepreneurial ecosystem in Europe, and therefore he had to raise primarily in the Valley. And after he sold Skype for the second time, which I think is a remarkable case study, in itself, not that many people sell, you know, their company two times. He decided to start Atomica as a fund, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, that he wished he had raised from when he was building Skype. And what it means in reality is that founder mentality, what it's like to be a partner to game changers. And that's how we call it, because we eventually want to be a partner on the journey to change the status quo. And what it means in reality is, is two things. So one, we are a fairly large fund. See where the current fund lands, but the fund number five, the one before was $820 million, which allows us to do anything from 3 million you know, investment on the early side all the way to 50 million investments on the growth side. And in many cases, there is quite a lot of synergies between early stage and growth stage strategy because as I mentioned, you know, for me personally, one of the hardest moments is when you pass an opportunity, especially the one where you were close to saying yes. And then a year later, you kind of realize, oh, damn, I actually made a huge mistake. Right. And that's where our strategy of maintaining a relationship throughout the years of company building comes into reality because we can invest at various stages of company formation. And if I was wrong at a certain point, it doesn't mean that we will not try to correct that mistake later on. So it helps us. And there are plenty of use cases where we pass that A, pass that B, and then let the C, for instance. Obviously, the core of my team that I'm a part of is doing A, late seed A, 
early B. We are very you know, closely working with growth team as well. The second thing is we strongly believe that there have to be people in the room and in the team that can help you scale your business and that have done that multiple times. You know, many VCs say, oh, we want to be helpful or we will be helpful. And then the simple litmus test for me is to ask like who exactly is going to be helpful. And if it's only the, the partner that is going to work with you or whoever is going to work with you from the investment side, that person has that many hours in their day and they have that many companies that they can work in a scalable manner and they're not an expert in everything, right? Therefore, what sets us aside is a team of what it is now 15 people that we call growth acceleration that consists of former heads of functions and C-level, VP-level people from companies like Twitter, Google, Snowflake, and others who have done scaling and who have seen what great looks like. One person that is head of people at Atomica used to be head of people at Google EMEA, scale Google from 50 to 10,000 people. The person that leads our go-to-market was SVP of sales at Snowflake, grew Snowflake from zero to 100 million there are. Every time a founder asked me about a specific question, I first assess, am I the best person to advise on that question? Do we have anyone on the team that is much better positioned to advise on that question? And if not, who is in our extended network can be an expert in that specific question? Because I think one of the scenes that VCs might have is thinking that they're experts in everything and therefore you know they might have a qualified view on many things in my view you might have a view but that view is not necessarily the most qualified view that founder can get access to and therefore complementing ourselves as investors with that growth acceleration team is incredibly powerful and i'm like so so humbled and privileged to have those people working alongside and helping our companies become better companies I can totally see that and yeah, having met a few of the team, I mean, the sort of caliber is just first class. And again, it does give that real reassurance to any founders that are, are pitching to you just that if they get investment and they've got access to the best of the best who have been there and done it, that does bring huge comfort. For you specifically, you've come through the ranks at Atomico, you're a partner. I bet there are people listening to this that don't actually know day to day what a partner role looks like. And I'm sure it's slightly different depending on the fund or stage. Tell us a bit about what your day-to-day looks like. As a partner, you have many responsibilities and not all of them are investment related. So let's break it out into a couple of buckets. So one is anything related to investments, starting from end-to-end process management of a new investment or you know a new partnership. You might start as early as sourcing that opportunity yourself, finding and spotting the opportunities that might be potential for partnership, all the way to running the due diligence, understanding the merits and consideration of that opportunity, presenting that opportunity internally, building the conviction yourself, but also within the team, eventually the minds and hearts of the founders. So they pick you to partner up with them on their journey. And then everything that goes from there, which I think is 80% of the work actually, helping companies go from the point where you invested and form the partnership all the way to how success could look like. And that might mean many things from sitting on the boards and advising on the strategic matters, all the way to sometimes helping founders cope with some of the challenges that they go through as founders. SVB crisis has been one of very interesting points in time where many companies suddenly started having problems. And how do you deal with that? How you help companies 
and founders themselves also go through that experience, cope with mental health challenges. So that's a big piece of it, which is, you know, investment related. There is a second piece, which is organization related. How do you make the organization flourish? That might mean anything from internal project. How do you make processes better? How do you make investments better? You know, helping others make decisions, spinning up new strategies and things of that kind. And the third one is people development because, you know, VC is a apprenticeship model where you need to work with other people and you need to show them what the process is about and how you can make it better. And it might mean anything from helping the associates on your team and other juniors become better investors or even outside of your firm, you know, having some ecosystem related responsibilities where you might help people that otherwise are not very qualified to get into VC, you know, get that qualification, advise them, be involved in things that are promoting DNI and just trying to make the ecosystem a better place for everyone. Because at the end of the day, if the ecosystem grows, it also leads to many more interesting investment opportunities. And kind of there is this vicious cycle. The better investors perform, the more startups there are in the ecosystem. But it all starts with people that need to learn. And therefore, you spend quite significant time just helping those people to learn. Really interesting. Thank you, Satya. We touched upon it briefly. Do you mind telling us a bit more about the types of businesses that you personally invest in? Probably most interesting for aspiring or current founders listening to this, what is it you're looking for when you're talking to them? I think throughout my journey, I've realized that the best areas for me to spend time on are the ones where I'm also passionate about the problem or solution or the types of people that would work with that problem. Eventually, I defined my area of interest pretty vaguely, and that is anything that has complexity in the product, problem, or business model. And in many cases, that means that those will be more complicated products. I spend quite a lot of time with developer tools, as I mentioned in the beginning, as an open source, as a distribution model, more holistically speaking. But that doesn't end there. I also do a lot of frontier exploration, including blockchain and Web3. And the third area that I'm quite excited about is future of work, especially business models that are a bit harder to pull off than just pure play B2B. I'm on the board of one company that is a earlier investment of ours called Job and Talent. That is a B2B marketplace connecting blue-collar workers and companies. That's a pretty big company, 3,000 people. And when that company succeeds, they would revolutionize the way blue-collar workers find their jobs. At the same time, it's the one where there is quite a lot of complexity in the business model, and I just enjoy unbundling that complexity. But I also work with companies like Mondu, that is a company providing cybersecurity tools for developers, where the product itself is very complex. Or a company that you mentioned, Ban, that provides flexible benefits, allowing people to get what they truly need as a benefit rather than one size fits all. But in order to do that, you kind of need to innovate both on the business model and on the product. Behind every company that I work with, there is some complexity and I enjoy just working with companies like that. But I also think that complexity breeds opportunity. Because if it's obvious for everyone, there is not that much opportunity, neither for me as an investor, because everyone else will be jumping on it, but also for the company, because there will be like 100 other companies doing the same. And I think for me, what really stands out in a pitch is ability to spot a problem that if solved can 10x the well-being of people. Ability to solve that problem by going not contrarian, but going against what's considered status quo. And therefore, you kind of need to have people who have the guts and the capabilities 
to you know spot the problem and to execute on the solution for that problem. A lot of that is about the team, how they decided to start the company, similar to what I shared to you a few minutes ago. It's coming from my experience, you know, why this team, why this founding you know group of people. For me, it's like, what is your unique insight? Why you and why this market? And then everything else is down to execution because we're early stage VCs. We need to be very mindful that when we invest, execution will be very nascent. And it's our also responsibility to help companies scale that because not that many people have scaled companies before. Therefore, we as VCs see common paths that you can advise founders on that otherwise would not or could not be you know, so obvious. Super interesting and fantastic advice for anyone that happens to be pitching to you anytime soon. I guess what we're also seeing is this next wave of operators that have been through hyper growth journeys in Europe, scale ups over the last few years, starting to found their own businesses. So although they haven't necessarily found a business before, they've seen firsthand some of the, the great stories. And I think we're going to see some incredible businesses uh, emerge. It sounds like the areas you're investing in personally are hot topics, future work, Ben. We're a client of Ben's, a brilliant innovation, great product that we're really has solved some headaches for me as a small business owner, Web3 goes without saying, amazing time to be investing in that space. So very exciting times ahead. I wanted to just slightly shift the conversation, but it's linked to something that you said when you were talking about all the sorts of things you're looking for in individuals. We talk a lot about purpose on this podcast. We actually hosted a live 40 minute mental recording at the Sifted Summit last year on this exact topic, purpose and profit. And I know that you're very passionate about making a positive impact with your investments, but also still getting a good return, which is obviously the name of the game. So I'd be interested in your take uh, personally on how those two things can go hand in hand. Is this idealistic or is this really something that is true? You kind of live and breathe. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely not a marketing gimmick because at the end of the day, I believe that the best partnerships that create a lot of value are the ones that significantly change the way people live. And that change in 99.9% of the cases is a positive change, right? You think about Uber or Airbnb or any others where the impact of the tech enabled solution that they created has improved many people's lives. And in my mind, the companies that I want to be a small part of the journey are the ones that if successful, which, you know, in VC model is, is a big if because Many companies, more than 50% of companies, you know, do not succeed. If they are successful, they can change people's lives to the better. And therefore, in my mind, there is a direct correlation between how much positive change and therefore positive value is being created and how much positive change or a piece of that positive change the company can capture in terms of the revenue and therefore can create a fruitful return for investors and therefore LPs. For me personally, I think there are very few cases where those things are misaligned. And therefore, it's not a surprise that I'm personally looking for the companies and the products that can make that change. Because once again, if that is a part of the equation that works out, everything else will work out as well. With one caveat, I think there are business models and types of products where by default, it's much harder to capture that value, right? Nginx is a good example where one third of the internet is using their technology, but financially, they were still very successful, but not as successful as many other you know, companies in the space. So for me, when I look at opportunities, it's not like I'm evaluating the positive impact of that specific technology, but I'm evaluating the impact in general, and I'm trying to understand, is it going to be 10x better than the next best alternative? 
And 10x is a very cheesy way to describe it, but is it like significantly different or it's marginally improving the process that is already either good or it might be even antiquated, but if it's 5% better, who cares basically? And for us as a firm, I still remember when I joined, we just introduced this new thing in our due diligence process that we called conscious scaling. And that process was basically after we have issued the term sheet in our confirmatory due diligence, we would sit with founders for sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, and we would walk them through a set of questions that prompt them to think the impact of their technology at scale. Not only the positive impact that their technology could have, but also the negative impact, because you know, if you don't start putting guardrails and if you don't start preventing some of the things that might go wrong when you reach that scale, it's much harder to achieve that when you've already scaled. And for us as a firm, it's pretty important to partner up with founders who are aligned with us on that view that eventually tech is an enabler for a better world. It's nothing else. And therefore, if you make the world a better place and you're also a savvy businessman or businesswoman, you can find a way how to capture a piece of that value. And if you apply that lens, that also brings a bit of purpose to the company internally, because in many cases at early stage startups, it's not about the money, right? It's not about anything but the mission of the company and the desire of people to be a part of the story that would you know, eventually be a big you know, splash in the world. I love the way you look at it and actually it really rings true for me. Historically, headhunters often are seen as kind of commercial animals that just love making money. Whereas actually for me, the reason I get up in the morning, and again, not to be cheesy, is that I believe I can help build the companies in the future. I can change people's lives as well by getting them incredible jobs. That for me marries up that purpose and profit perfectly and gives me and the team something to drive us on each day. Yeah, I love the way you think of that. I just wanted to come on and talk about advice for aspiring investors or current investors. I think there's going to be a few listening to this. So we're going to get people that will mess in a lot asking for series like this because they want to get into VC and we know it's a difficult move to make. So what advice do you have for any aspiring investors that are trying to get in the door, particularly to focus on the less glamorous parts of the job and the difficult bits of the job so we can give a realistic view of the industry? So give us a bit of the less good bit and then some advice that can help anyone isn't put off by that. Probably start with the last glamorous thing and, or a difficult part of the job. And one thing that I think people might not realize and might heavily underestimate about the industry is that it, at one point or another, becomes your life. And you need to be comfortable with that. You need to be comfortable that many of your friends will be other VCs or people in tech, that you'll be spending your night by going out with people who are your work colleagues. You'll be thinking about the next cool tech You'll be reading the things, you'll be traveling for, you know, the business purposes. And that is becoming a big part of your life. And if you don't enjoy the types of the things that you do and you're not comfortable dedicating yourself fully to the industry, I think you'll be very disappointed because one thing is to get into VC, which is hard. Even harder thing is to stay in VC. The hardest thing is to be a successful VC. And there are different level of dedication that you need to have in order to go from one level or another. So you need to mentally prepare for all of the things that you'll have to sacrifice. But you also get a lot, don't get me wrong, but you'll have to sacrifice a lot. And you need to be mindful that it will be your life and you will live your life in a certain way. You know, for some people it's not acceptable. You know, they might not enjoy it. So you need to enjoy that. The most compelling, but at the same time useless, 
to a certain degree advice that I've been given is you don't need to be in a VC firm to do a VC's job. So you can do many things that VCs do without actually being a part of a VC firm. What it means in reality is that some things that VCs do are like forming a thesis, speaking to a company, you know, going and networking, finding great people that will go and build great companies, thinking about the future of technology or specific sector. All of those things, they are much easier when you have a good brand associated with your name, but it doesn't mean that you can't do it without it. It's a huge hassle. And if you can break into VC by doing that without actually having a brand and the resources and all the platform you know, assets that go into your process, if you can do that without that, and then you join a VC firm, that will just magnify your efforts. At the same time, I realized that it's a kind of useless advice because many people, especially the ones that want to break into VC, they might be coming from underprivileged backgrounds. They don't have networks. They don't know where to start. So that's why I think you know, being open to helping those people at least start the journey it's quite important mission that many you know, partners and other VCs should keep in mind because otherwise it's very hard to expand the industry. Starting doing what you want to do without formally being associated with a firm is probably the best way to get noticed by someone, but it's also the hardest. Again, it's really good advice. I'm sure there are lots of people that are going to take that advice on board. And I hope we'll see a much more diverse ecosystem and venture landscape over the years ahead because... You know, as you say, we all have our part to play in terms of helping on that. We don't have long left. So briefly, in your opinion, what makes a really good investor? And despite all the volatility that's happened in the last 12 months, why is now a good time for people to get involved in the VC space? On what makes a good investor, I'll report back in 25 years. A few elements that I think are important. Having curiosity, having tolerance for uncertainty, ability and desire to constantly learn, and very well-developed social skills. That doesn't mean that you'll succeed, but that at least will help you be more comfortable with some of the elements that go into being AVC. And I think on your second question in terms of the next 12 months, in my view, you can't time the market with any investments, and especially with your career moves when it comes to VCs. Because if you want to be in VC, you need to budget for the next five, seven years. It's not an industry where you have very short feedback cycles. And therefore, if you want to get into VC, that's a commitment for the next five, seven years. So you just need to invest on the fundamentals and believe that those are right. And if they're wrong, you need to learn from those and invest on a new set of fundamentals if you're allowed to and learn from those again. But I think fundamental is very hard to say, oh, let's wait for the next three months because we think the market is going to be better. Never happened. And I think it's impossible to time the market, regardless of whether you invest as a VC or a public equity investor or any other asset manager. Very wise advice, Sasha. I'm glad we had a chance to touch on that briefly. Sasha, it's been a real pleasure. I really love talking to you and uh, I love what you've come for. But we're at an end, so we've got three final quick questions. In one sentence, what does the future hold for Atomico? Atomico's ambition is to be investor and employer of choice for a Series A investing in Europe. And I think that's exactly the future that we'll see. And what is the final best piece of advice you can give to founders that are currently fundraising? I think you need to be very pragmatic about the absolute minimum you need to raise and spend most of your time with investors that are the best fit and are more likely to convert as your lead investor. Very important advice at this time. Thank you. Finally, this is 40 Minute Mentor. So I have to ask if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I actually spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. And I think the name 
that resonated with me the most was Isaac Asimov. And this is a very famous sci-fi you know, author. And a lot of VCs, their job is to have a view on the evolution of tech, which is obviously a big part of what is defining the society. And I think Isaac, as many others, brilliant sci-fi writers, have predicted many things that have already become a reality or will become a reality. And he is mostly famous for you know three laws of robotics. And I think he specifically is very relevant for the current boom of AI. And it prompts you to think what the future holds for us. And therefore, I would have loved to be his mentee. Love that. Perfect place to end it. Sasha, thank you so much. Really hope you have a fantastic summer. Invest in lots of amazing new businesses and hopefully come back on in the future to tell us all about them. Thank you for sharing your mentorship with all our audience and look forward to seeing you in person for a coffee soon. Thank you so much. It was lots of fun. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Sasha and that you'll go check out Atomico. They are one of the very best VC firms in Europe with an enviable portfolio of incredible startups and scale-ups. So check out the links in the show notes to find out more. If you're working for a disruptive brand yourself, I also wanted to flag our 40-minute mentor partnership opportunities to you. We know that the podcast partnerships are fairly new, but we've also seen over the past nine series of 40-minute mentor how mutually beneficial they can be. So if you are looking to raise your brand awareness and attract amazing talent to your business, then please get in touch with our head of marketing, Hannah, on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. She'd love to explore some innovative content opportunities with you. That's all from us today, but I really hope to see you next week for even more VC mentorship.